So this morning, we're continuing with Acts. I'm thinking maybe next week. I'll I'll be honest with you. I'm having some... um, some control, some separation. What would you call that? Separation anxiety. Like, I don't even know where to go next. I hadn't even asked the Lord where to go next. I'm just like, so anyway, no, I'm joking. Today we're in uh, chapter 28, of course, because we can't go any further. Um, I'm trying to finish up the book of Acts. More than likely, I will wrap it up next week with a um, just kind of a, a round review of the book and um, see what the Lord says about that. So today, um, chapter 28, we're, we're probably in the second half of chapter 28. There was a time back when I was in construction, I was uh, working at Fort Polk, uh, pouring some curbs for a new parking lot. It was the middle of August and it was just scalding hot. Humidity was high. It was just one of those good old Louisiana August days. You know what I'm saying? Like you just, you walk outside, you can't even breathe. And we're trying to pour concrete and one of my buddies at the time was working with us. His name is Justin. And, and he was running the machine that was pouring the curb. And, and they were getting too far ahead of us. So I was trying to communicate to him, hey, slow down. Like, stop for a minute. Let us catch up. And so I'm hollering at him. And, of course, the machine's running so he can't hear me. And if you've been on a construction site like that, it can get a bit intense because mostly because you can't hear. There's just too much noise going on. So I'm hollering at him. And he, he doesn't hear me. And he looks at me. And, and I even do the, you know, the universal stop, stop. And he doesn't stop. And I'm like, bro, what the heck you doing? So tensions get high the higher the temperature goes. Come on. Most of you were in a good mood this week because the temperatures were lower. Don't think it's funny because the dog gets frisky. You get frisky too. So I run up to the machine. I'm like, bro, stop, stop. And he's looking at me like, What? what? I'm like, what's this dude's problem? I'm like, stop, we got to catch up. And he's like, I can't hear you. And I went, what's wrong with him? And then it dawned on me, he was severely dehydrated. He was at the point of about to have a heat stroke. He was losing his vision and he was losing his ability to hear. He never saw me say stop. He couldn't see that far. He was severely dehydrated. We didn't know. So I stopped the truck, stopped the machine. We took him, me and a couple guys, carried him underneath a shade tree, gave him some electrolytes, and kept working. (laughs) We checked on him. (laughs) But there was something going on inside of him that was preventing him from seeing and hearing. So the title of my message today is, Have You Seen or Heard Lately? That's a good question. Have you seen the Lord moving and have you heard the Lord speaking lately? So I want to show you today how Paul handled some hard-hearted Jews in Rome. So last week we leave off there shipwrecked on Malta, the sweet island And Paul and the others stay there for three months. You couldn't sail because of the winter season. So they had to wait till almost March before they could sail again because the weather was just too bad. So this other ship comes up. They board the ship and they take off towards Rome after three months of sitting on that island. 
Along the way, they make some stops. Paul has some, some extreme freedoms. He gets to spend a week with some believers he runs into at one of the places. They get to Rome, and Paul is basically living in a rent house that he's paying for. Now, it's believed that Paul went back to making tents again in order to pay for the house that he's staying in. So he's a prisoner living in a rent house that he's paying for with a guard sitting outside just to make sure that he doesn't escape, but to also make sure that he doesn't get harmed. Basically, house arrest. His friends are able to come and go as they please. No rules, no regulations. Just that. So pick the story up with me in chapter 28, verse 20. So Paul gets there, and after three days, he makes a request. He said, I asked you to come here today so we could get acquainted and so I could explain to you that I am bound with these chains because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. So Paul gets to Rome three days after he's in Rome. He calls the Jewish leaders to his place, and he says, listen, I called you here so that we could get acquainted, community connection, and so that I could explain to you why I'm in these chains and tell you about the hope of Israel, the Messiah, Jesus, who's already come. Verse 23, so a time was set, and on that day, a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. Using the law of Moses and the book of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. Evening. Verse 24, some were persuaded by the things he said, but others did not believe. You need to understand something about Paul. Paul was a Jew through and through. In fact, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like, there's no, like, he strived to be the, the best example of what it means to be Jewish his whole life. And he dearly loves the Jewish people. If you remember, there was multiple times God was sending him out to the Gentiles, but he was wanting to stay with the Jews. Paul wanted nothing more than to his Jewish brothers and sisters for them to, to have the same experience that he had. He wanted them to experience a mind change like he had so that they would experience a life change like he had. And so when it says that some did not believe, it was very distressing to Paul because he loved them so much. He rejoiced over those that did believe, no doubt about that, but he was still distressed and heartbroken by those who did not believe. I want you to remember something today that I said last week Last week I said, everywhere you go, you need to remember that your purpose goes with you. You can't ever leave your purpose behind. You can choose not to walk in your purpose or live in your purpose, and that's being rebellious and disobedient to God. But wherever you go, you need to know that the purpose of God is with you. Paul kept his purpose with him everywhere that he went. The Bible says that Paul tried to persuade them about Jesus. Now, this is worth unpacking for just a minute. In the Greek, it's the word pytho, which means this. This is what it means to persuade. This is what Paul was after, and you need to understand this. Pytho means to change someone's mind, watch this, by argument, 
by advice or by reasoning. Paul was after one thing, to change their mind. He wasn't even after trying to clean them up. Just change your mind. Just change the way you're currently thinking. Paul used everything in his arsenal to change their mind. He was logical, practical, spiritual, theological in his approach. He went at him with everything that he had, trying to change their mind. And he went at it from morning to evening. He didn't even let his physical tiredness, his physical exhaustion keep him from trying to persuade them. But only some were convinced and their minds were changed and others did not budge. But the conversation's not over with. Go to verse 25. Paul realizing that some are not going to change their mind. As distressed and heartbroken as he was, he left them with a final word. Verse 25, he says, And after they had argued back and forth among themselves, watch what happened. Those that changed their mind, that Paul had been persuading from morning to evening, started to argue with those who would not change their mind. And this argument breaks out about those who believe what Paul said and those who didn't believe what Paul said. So, as, so after they had argued back and forth among themselves, they left with this final word from Paul. <laughs> the Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through Isaiah the prophet, go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened. And their ears cannot hear. And they have closed their eyes. So their eyes cannot see. And their ears cannot hear. And their hearts cannot understand. Watch this. And they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. Why could they not turn back to him to heal them? Because their hearts had become hard. They couldn't receive what God had for them because their heart had grown hard. They couldn't see anymore. They couldn't hear anymore. They couldn't understand. They couldn't comprehend anymore. God was moving in the rent house and they didn't even know it. Clueless. As Paul is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And the prophecy that was given to Isaiah in chapter 6. That prophecy was a judgment on God's people, his chosen people. God was saying to them, when I speak, you won't understand. And when I do things, you won't comprehend. Your hearts are hardened. Your ears cannot hear. They have closed their eyes because their ears cannot hear and their eyes cannot see. Their hearts cannot understand. And all of that was keeping them from turning to the Lord and receiving healing. Paul couldn't make any of them believe, but he sure did everything he could to persuade them. He did everything he could to persuade them, to change their minds. 
So here's a question. After all of that, why did Paul use Isaiah 6? Why did he pull from Isaiah chapter 6 and share this prophecy with them? Because if you understand the prophecy of Isaiah 6, the prophecy that Isaiah gets in chapter 6 is a prophecy that's basically about salvation. It's God saying to his own chosen people, you can't even come back to me because you no longer hear and you no longer see and your hearts can't even understand what I'm doing. It was a call for salvation. It was a prophecy. It was a judgment with the purpose and the intentions of bringing God's people back to himself. You see, we've bought into the lie that all judgment is bad. All judgment is not bad. Judgment from God has a redemptive thing in it. It has a redeeming power to it. God calls out your sin. He calls out your lack, not to run you off, but to bring you back. It's a snap out of it kind of thing. It's a thing where God loves us so much. He says, you can't hear anymore and you can't see anymore. Would you just wake up? I'm still here. And I want you back. I want you back. I'm judging you right now because I want you back. It's a prophecy of salvation, meaning the acceptance of what Jesus does on the cross. It's about salvation, meaning the renewing of a relationship with God. When you were saved, you didn't just get eternity in heaven. You went from an enemy of God to a friend of God. For the love of God, that ought to wreck your soul right now. I went from an enemy to a friend. I didn't do anything to deserve that. That was before I was even trying to live right. It's about salvation, meaning I was given a new life. Meaning before you gave your life to Jesus, you were spiritually dead. I had a guy in my life group, I told you this the other day, he was in my life group on week one, two weeks ago, and he's sitting there, and we, we were going through the foundations book, and I, I said, man, what's your application from all this lesson? And he goes, I'll just be honest with you, I, don't, I can't interpret the scriptures. And I went, bing, he's not saved. I led him into salvation. He gave his life to Jesus. He came back this past week. He can understand scripture now. Why? Because he came alive. He was spiritually dead and couldn't understand, but now he's spiritually alive and the Bible is exploding in front of him. It's about salvation, meaning meaning the lordship of Jesus Christ. Oh, we want heaven. Everybody wants some heaven. I don't know how many of us want some lordship. I don't know how many of us want some surrender. I don't know how many of us are willing to die to what Christ wants instead of what we want. We want salvation, but we don't want some lordship. Oh, that lordship, that's a little too much, Pastor. Like, I just, I don't even want to surrender to the police to to drive the speed limit. Like, I definitely don't want to. (laughs) That was a confession. The prophecy was about salvation, meaning the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
And so some of you may be sitting here and you may be wondering how this pertains to you because you're already saved. For the love of God, did you not just hear what I said for the last five minutes? If you are saved, then all of that was given to you. All of that was done for you. You've been invited into kingdom life now. You don't have to live world life anymore. That's a stoop down. It's a level below you now. The world is junk compared to kingdom. And you've been invited into kingdom. So let's go to Isaiah 6. Because we got to understand something about Isaiah. Isaiah 6 chapter, I mean chapter 6 verse 1. It was, it was in the year of King Uzziah. In the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He had a vision or he was taken to a place. I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. Verse 8. Then... You might ought to underline then. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am. Send me. After this comes the prophecy that we read in Acts chapter 28. But let's unpack this. It says there were seraphim. Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees the temple. He sees the Lord sitting on a lofty throne. He sees the train of his robe. It, it fills the whole temple. It's like the train on a bride's, a bride's dress. In those, in, in those days, the longer and more glamorous the train, the, the more power and authority you possessed. So, so the train of his robe filled the whole temple. And he saw seraphim flying, which is interesting. I've never seen a seraphim. <laughs> if you've seen a seraphim, I'd like to talk about that. 
he saw seraphim with six wings, two wings covering their faces, and then two wings covering their feet, and then two wings flying around ready to do stuff. And I was like, man, that's interesting. A seraphim is a heavenly being. Talks about them in Revelation also. They're a heavenly being. They have six wings, two covering their face, two covering their feet, two to fly around and do things that the Lord would want them to do. So I'm like, wow, that's cool. The more I thought about it, the more I realized the seraphim's posture. The posture of the seraphim was a posture of humility. It was a posture of worship. Worship is a sign of humility. Because the minute you can worship anything other than yourself, you evidently have had to humble yourself to lift something else up above you. It's like, wow. So well, why, why cover the face? Well, I was reminded of Moses who couldn't see God. So evidently, heavenly beings can't look upon God in that way. Humble. Well, why their feet? I was really interested in this one. Because I got ugly feet. I said, like, why the feet? And when you research it, it's believed they covered their feet to cover any blemishes. That the Lord wouldn't have to look upon any blemishes. It was a posture of humility, a posture of worship, and then only two wings were left to fly around and do things for God. Then I had a revelation. We must do more worshiping than activity. The seraphim taught me that it's more important to adore God than to be active for God. Ah! Why? Because your activity should come from your adoration to God. You're not trying to earn nothing. You're not trying to gain nothing. You're not trying to gain salvation from what you do. It's coming from a place of worship, a place of placing God above yourself. Spurgeon said, to serve God best, we must be deeply humbled in his presence. Adoration must exceed activity. So that's what he saw. Then he heard something. It says this in verse 3, they were calling out to each other. That's important. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I don't know how you understand the scriptures, but I used to think that they were saying that to God. No, no, no. They were saying that to one another. The seraphim were shouting to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His glory fills the earth. Holy, and then the other one would shout it back. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His glory fills the earth. And then they would shout it back. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His glory fills the earth. They were doing this in the presence of God to one another. 
Oh my God, what should the church be doing today? Instead of critiquing and criticizing one another, we should be declaring how holy God is. When we meet with one another, God is so good. God is so holy. God is so big. Holy, holy, holy. It's a beautiful picture of what the church should be doing to one another. In the Hebrew times, when you use the word holy, it like describing somebody, if you said that person is holy, if you said holy one time, it was just indicating that that person was set apart for a special purpose. Meaning that there's something about that person that their life has been set apart. They are holy is how you would describe that. If you said they were holy, holy, you used holy twice, that indicated that that person or that thing or that God, whatever it was, was most holy. So if you wanted to amp it up and say that person is not just holy, they're holy, holy. You went from they were just set apart for special purpose to they are most holy. Well, the seraphim said, holy, holy, holy. When you use holy three times in the Jewish tradition, when you used it three times, it meant that that thing or that person that you were talking about was so holy that your language couldn't even describe how holy he was. Like you cannot even verbalize how far apart God is set from this world. How far apart God is set from evil. How far apart God is from all these things. He is so holy, your words can't even describe it. And that's what they're shouting to one another. which then led me to this thought. That's pretty big, right? Like I can't even describe how holy God is. My words will always fall short of how holy he really is. Man, he's something like I've never known before. He's all that and all that and all that. Like I can't even describe how, how awesome God is. And if he's holy, 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 why does he hang out with me? Why does he want to talk to me? Why does he want to spend time with me? I know me. I ain't holy, holy, holy. All that God is that we can't even fully comprehend he still reaches down to, to humanity to be in relationship with us. Wow. So 
So to be holy means to be, the root of that word means to be set apart. To be set apart in the church world, it means to be set apart for God's will and for God's purpose. So Isaiah's watching this. It's believed he's standing in almost like a door of the temple. And he's looking into the, to the temple. And he sees God high on the throne. His robe fills the temple. He sees the seraphim. And he's making observations about what's going on in the, the temple. And he hears the passionate worship of the, of the seraphim. He sees the glory of God. He understands that what they're saying is that this God whom sits here on this throne is undescribable. And then he realizes his condition. And then he makes a statement like, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Can I just say something that's not even in your notes? The last place you should ever compare yourself is on this planet. The last person you should ever compare yourself to is another person. If you want to get a real evaluation of your life, you need to get into the presence of God and see his glory and then see where you stand in light of his glory. And if you want to compare something, take a good evaluation right there. See how big and beautiful and bold God is and then look at your own life and compare that. So what if you're better than somebody else? That's still falling short. Isaiah's watching and listening to the seraphim going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it's all the passion. It's all the strength that they have. Holy, holy, holy. And they're shouting to one another. Holy, holy, holy. And it comes back. Holy, holy, holy. And he's sitting there. And he's going, I don't worship like that. My worship is so weak compared to that. I challenged the worship team this morning. I said, let's go after Jesus and these people in this, in this building. They're just going to have to deal with what they're going to have to deal with. Because he's standing there watching this happen and his life gets wrecked. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Did I lose you along the way? Is this too much? He sees how strongly the seraphim are worshiping God and realize he has nothing to compare to that. And he says, I am undone. I am doomed. Can I tell you that that's not a bad place to be? Spurgeon said that God will never do anything with us till he first, till he has first of all undone us. In this moment, Isaiah sees his sinfulness. He describes his speech, which, by the way, your speech is what comes out of your heart. He says, I have unclean lips, meaning I have an unclean heart. 
That's simply what he was saying. He saw his sin, that the stuff coming out of me is is just an indication of what's buried inside of me. I have unclean lips. I'm with people of unclean lips. Then he looks upon God's holiness and he realizes how big and incredible God is. He's like, I'm dead. I'm done. I'm undone. Then one of the seraphim takes a hot coal from the altar. So evidently there was an altar there too. And he brings it with a pair of tongs. And he puts it on Isaiah's lips. We must always remember that the throne is meant for God. But the altar was given for us. And anytime you feel like you need to be on a throne... That throne don't belong to you. The altar does. Because you see, when you want to be on a throne, it's an indication of the extreme pride in your life and the unhealthiness of your heart. So instead of reaching for a throne, why don't we reach for the altar? Where there's something there that can change us. So I'm looking at this and I'm going, wow, that must be a hot coal. Because even the heavenly being can't handle it himself or herself or itself, whatever, however you say that. It uses a pair of tongs to carry that hot coal and he touches Isaiah's lips, which means salvation. Isaiah was saved in that moment. So Isaiah's response to this salvation is the most important point of the day. Notice the next verse, right after he gets his lips touched with the burning coal from the altar of God, he says something. I heard the Lord. Now, up until this point, he's not describing anything that he's heard other than what the seraphim are saying to one another. He's making observations with his eyes, and he's seeing what's going on. And then all of a sudden, he doesn't hear, before that, he doesn't hear anything from God. But then all of a sudden, as soon as he's saved, the cold touches his lips. I heard the Lord. I believe he heard the Lord, and he heard the foundations of the temple being shaken. Now that he's saved, he hears the Lord asking for something. Which is puzzling to me. Why would God be asking for something? Does he really need help? Does he really not know things? Is he really trying to find out if somebody can give him an answer to a question? You ever wonder why God asks questions? Is it for him or is it for us? Isaiah hears God, and he hears him asking a question. And the question is, is whom should I send to these people? Who will go for us? (laughs) Who was God after? 
What is his question indicating who is, how, who is his question indicating that he's after? I don't know if I worded that right, but just hang, hang in there with me. God said, whom shall we send to these people? Who will go for us to them? Who's God going after? It's not a trick question. His people. Okay, let me read it. If I can't describe it, we'll let the Bible clear it up. I heard the Lord asking, verse 8, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? Who is he after? Okay, this is, I'm like, this is really not difficult. (laughs) He's after his people. God is after his people. Let that get deep down in your soul this morning. God is always after his people. Even when his people ain't after him. That's the whole story in the Old Testament. Is that God would go after his people and then they would receive him. And then they would turn their back on him. And they would go away from him. And then God would get mad. And then God would go back after him again. God is always after his people. Say this with me. God is always after me. Not to hurt us, but to heal us. You see, God wants to reach the world. And he wants to reach the world through his people. I don't know why he wants to do it that way. He could easily send the seraphim. He could send the angels. He could command them to go and do it, and they would have to do it. But instead, God uses people to reach more people. And why are you in love with these people? (laughs) And why did you decide to use people with a free will to go reach people that you want them to reach? Why would you do that? You ever wonder those things? He's waiting for ready hearts to reveal themselves. He's asking the question to see who's going to be the answer. It seems strange to me that God's asking for volunteers. Does it not seem strange to you? God's asking for volunteers. Who will go for us? He's waiting for willing, surrendered servants. Let me ask you a question. Have you been waiting for God to force you to serve him? Have you been waiting for him to present it to you in such a way that you feel safe enough to accept it? What are you waiting for? 
Because if you're waiting for God to force you to serve him, that says something about you. That says that you do have a little bit of willingness. You're willing for him to force you. But the thing that's, that's missing is your understanding of God. Even though you are willing for God to force you, God's not waiting for that. He's waiting for you to be willing to volunteer. Because there's a big difference between being voluntold and volunteering. And God's looking for men and women who will sign up. And say, here am I, send me. (sighs) To volunteer means to enter into any service of one's free will. Without solicitation or compulsion. Do you honestly believe God wants to guilt trip you to serve him? Do you honestly believe he wants to have an argument with you to make you serve him? Don't make him beg. It's a big difference when our kids take out the garbage because they remembered and they love us. Then when you got to threaten their life. Word. If you don't take out that garbage, for the love of God, I'm sending you back to heaven. That's not what he's after. And he's not trying to force you to do something. Because the minute he has to force you, your free will is saying, I'm going to do it only because you're forcing me, not because I want to. When the thing that God's listening for and longing for in relationship with us is a want to. God just wants a want to. Can you just want to? Can you just get into a place where you go, God, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'll go wherever you tell me to go. I want to be with you. What's keeping you from that place? Because that's the lie of the enemy. It's the trick of the world. What's keeping you from that place? Because God's longing for a want to. He's longing for a want to. Not a have to. I want to. God, I want to. God, I want to. So let's talk about Isaiah's response. So God asked the question, looking for a want to. And here's what Isaiah says. Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. You know what Isaiah wanted? He wanted to be God's answer. He wanted to be the answer to God's question. Who are we going to send? Who's going to go and reach these people of mine? Who's going to lay down their life and lay down their desires and their own wants and needs and ambitions and go into a place for others? Who's going to do that? 
who will go for us? And Isaiah's response is, here I am, send me. I imagine it looked like this. Here I am, send me. Maybe, maybe he had a hanky like mine and he's, he's, hey, oh, send me, I'll go. That's a big difference than Gideon who was hiding in a threshing floor. Isaiah stepped out in front and said, here I am, send me. That's the difference maker. He stepped into what God wanted. He stepped into the answer of God's question. He didn't wait for God to do all these things to pull on his heart and to bring compassion and conviction and, and manipulate you into a service. He presented the question, longing for a want to. And Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. My favorite movies are military movies where some dude in the, in the whole thing goes, I'll go. I go That's a man right there. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm saying? Here I am. Send me. He wanted to be the answer to God's question. Five things real quick. What created this kind of heart in Isaiah? Number one, he had a heart that had been in God's presence. How do you respond like that? Only when you've been in God's presence. Maybe the reason you don't want to get into God's presence is because you don't want to change. Maybe the reason you stay away from God's presence is because every time you show up in his presence, he wants you to do something different than what you want to do. Maybe you don't want to be in God's presence because it gets a little too uncomfortable in God's presence. Maybe you're afraid to see some things that you can't understand in God's presence. Had a guy show up to church recently, and after service, I met him in the foyer. And he's walking out, and he's got tears bawling up in his eyes. And I said, hey, man, you okay? And he's like on the verge of just losing it. I said, you want to go talk? So I brought him into a room, and we sat down and talked, and he said, he's trembling as he's telling. He says, I, I, I don't come to church regular because every time I come here, God's presence is here, and it brings up all this stuff that I don't want to deal with, and, and I'm just, I'm scared. And I don't, so pastor, that's why I don't come to church is because when I come to church, God's presence is here, and, uh, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable in his presence because he brings up all this stuff, and, and, and I just don't want to deal with the stuff. And I'm sitting there like this. Oh, my God. Thank you for your honesty. But let me tell you something. God's not bringing it up to hurt you, buddy. Every time you show up, he's trying to get it from you. He's just trying to take it from you, bro. That's what you're feeling. He just wants to take the guilt and the shame and the condemnation from you. He wants you to be free, bud. Stay in God's presence. Don't run. Don't hide out. Don't be absent. Stay in God's presence. Yeah. 
Sorry, my nose is just running like crazy. He had a heart that had been in God's presence. Some of you are just one moment away from radical change in your life. If you'll just slow your life down enough to get into God's presence. Let me just, let me just debunk a few things for you real quick. You don't need anybody else with you to be in God's presence. Nobody needs to hold your hand. You don't even have to have music on. What you really need is just to sit still and be quiet. Ask the Lord. Some of you need to ask the Lord to slow your mind down. Lord, would you clear my mind? Would you help me to take all these thoughts and put them in a place that that just kind of pauses for right now? You need to turn your phone off. You need to push the distractions away. But you, newborn believer, can be in God's presence all by yourself. The weather doesn't have to be right. You just need to quiet yourself to be in God's presence. And let me tell you something. It's more simple than the enemy telling you it is. It's more simple than the enemy's telling you it is. The enemy's telling you that you got to have this right and that right, and you got to have candles, and the, and the, the mood's got to be just right, like you're going on a hot date. Save that for a date or for marriage date. But, don't, but don't, that's not for God. God don't need all that. The, the enemy's overcomplicating it for you. Sit your tail in a chair in a quiet room and just talk to Jesus. Can you just do that? Can you just sit your tail on the floor and talk to Jesus in a quiet place? Leave your phone in the car, locked up in the glove box so you ain't tempted, and just sit there and stay there until you hear something. Some of you, oh, I don't hear nothing. You were there two minutes. It takes longer than two minutes to get your mind to slow down. There needs to be something inside of us that says, if I'm going to get into God's presence, I'm not leaving till he speaks. I'm not leaving till he gives me something. I'm not leaving till I know he's here. I'm going to wait on the Lord. You know what that means? You're going to have to wait. You know what we're not good at? Waiting. We eat at McDonald's. Well, you know, my house is too noisy, and, and, and some of you, you, you got kids. And I'll tell you, it gets better when your kids get older. But even your kids aren't a good excuse. Maybe you need to just look at your spouse and say, hey, can you, can you wrangle in the herd for a minute? I need to go see Jesus. And if your spouse understands that, they'll be like, I got the herd, baby. You go see Jesus. I can't tell you the time Cheryl looked at me and said, you need to go to Jesus. I'll finish cutting the grass, baby. You need to go to Jesus. I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't know if I can do that. You skip spots. Oh, my God. Come on, somebody. Come on, I was real right there. I have to tell myself, but even Jesus can fix those spots. <laughs> Number one, he had a heart that had been in God's presence. Number two, he had a heart that knew its own sinfulness. Do you know your repentance should be maturing? You heard that? Your repentance should be maturing. I used to, I used to repent for all the surface things in my life. And I've done that most of my life. I'm finally starting to mature that I'm getting down into the root of the issue. 
Instead of repenting for what's on the outside of my life, I'm starting to repent for what's on the inside of my life. And there's a big difference. It takes some self-evaluation. It takes a whole lot of humility to sit in a room and say, Lord, examine my heart because I know something's in there and I can't see it, but I know it's in there. That takes a whole lot of humility because it's a whole lot easier to just walk away and say, I'm good. I'm good. Ain't nobody said nothing. I'm good. Ain't nobody mad at me. My wife's good. We good. The dog likes me. We good. I don't have no sin in my life. He had a heart that knew its own sinfulness. You ever see somebody, or maybe this is you, where you get a bobo and you try to suck it up? Cole did this at serve day. I'm going to call you out, Cole. Cole cut his finger. He got a bobo. And he tried to be tough, which, I mean, I respect that to a certain degree. He was kind of like, kind of wiped it on. Like, bro, you need to go. We're all like, bro, go get a Band-Aid. I'm good. So he's, he's trying to keep going with his bobo. And it's, it's dripping blood everywhere. I'm like, bro, it's gross. Go get a bobo. Go get a Band-Aid. So finally, it, it didn't take long. I was proud of him. It didn't take long. He humbled himself and went and got a Band-Aid. That's just like us when we don't want to acknowledge our sin. I got a spiritual bobo, and instead of bringing it to the one who can heal it, I'm going to sit here with it and talk about, it's my bobo. I can handle my bobo. Me and my bobo are good friends. I know how to manage my bobos. Really? If that's the case, you're further than you even recognize. You've become deaf, and you can't see anymore, and your heart can't understand anymore. Number three, he had a heart that knew the need of the people. He had a heart that knew the need of the people. That need was God's word. He had a heart that knew the need of the people. He wasn't going to give them what they wanted. He was going to give them what they needed. You know what the frustrating part of Paul's ministry was? Every time somebody rejected what he was trying to give them. You know the hard part of being a preacher or a teacher is knowing that some of you, a bunch of you will walk out of here today not receiving what God has sent me to give you. Because what you need is what I'm trying to give you, but it's not what you want because it don't feel good. So some of you are frustrated right now with my message and you don't like it and you're hoping I'll end soon and shut up so that you don't have to hear me no more. And all I'm trying to do is give you something that God wants you to have. I'm trying to give you something that you need. And I'm not going to apologize because it's not what you want. He had a heart that knew the need of the people. You know, I spent most of my preaching time preaching other people's messages. And about a year or two ago, Lord dealt with me. He rebuked me. A straight up rebuke. He 
You say, how long are you going to keep doing that? Oh. You say, when are you going to start saying what I want to say? I said, okay. But like, that makes me nervous. Because what if my theology's off? What if I don't hear you right? That makes me uncomfortable because now I got to adjust my schedule. I got a cave day every week. Wednesday's my cave day. Lisa will tell you, nobody gets to me on Wednesdays. It's not because I'm that important. It's because I need absolute silence to hear from God. And I sit in that little office on Wednesdays. I get there about 9 o'clock. And I go in and I start to worship and pray. And I say, Lord, what do you want to say to the people? What do you want to say to me, Lord? Lead me. Guide me. I deal with my sin because I want my ears to be open. I deal with my pride because I don't want to think that I know what I'm supposed to say. And I sit in that office and I don't come out until I got the word that God has for me. And the word that God has for us. And I sit. I've not been to school for this. I've not been anywhere for this. And I'm not a polished preacher by any means. I say stuff. When Anna brought one of her friends a couple weeks ago, she said, you know what I love about your daddy? Like, he's theological enough, but like, he's gangster enough. (laughs) And I'll be honest with you, I took that as a compliment. I was like, praise God. (laughs) And then I show up on Sunday mornings after I stayed up till midnight on Saturday night to see if God wants to change anything before I get here. And then Sunday mornings, most of the time I sit here and you have no idea what's going on inside of me. All I want to do is give you what God wants for you. I don't want to be the guy that gives you what you want for you. Does that make sense? The Lord told me I could tell you that. I wasn't wanting to. But he said, I could tell you how this message got here today. It was birthed on Wednesday. I honestly thought I would be doing a review of Acts today. Number four. He had a heart that had been touched by God's cleansing fire. He had a heart that had been touched by God's cleansing fire. I believe for me that the day I gave my life to Jesus, my salvation day was just an example of what was to come. It was a taste. It was an appetizer of what was to come for me. The day that I experienced Jesus for the first time and I surrendered my life to him would be just an appetizer of how my life would go from here on out. And it has been. There's salvation moments all along the history of my life. Moments where I've wanted to take control. Moments where I've wanted to do things and I've had to lay it down at his feet. I need God's cleansing fire. Just like all of us need God's cleansing fire. Now you might think that it's pretty rough for God to take a coal, a hot burning coal, and to touch it on Isaiah's lips. But theologians believe 
that when it touched his lips, there was something supernatural that happened. It didn't singe his lips because he was able to speak afterwards. Because if he would have touched his lips with a coal that hot, he wouldn't have been able to respond to God. Which tells me that when God brings his cleansing fire into your life, it's not to shut you down, it's to invite you back in. It's not to burn you as punishment, it's to cleanse you so that there's nothing in between you and him. When is the last time you got on your face before God in your quiet spot and said, Lord, I need you to cleanse me. Lord, I need you to sanctify me. Lord, I need you to clear out this junk in my heart. Instead of somebody else having to point it out. He had a heart that had been touched by God's cleansing fire. Number five. He had a heart that heard God's heart to reach the nations. When we started the book of Acts, the Lord told me his purpose. His purpose is that we would hear his heart for the world around us. That we would hear hear his heart for the lost folks in our neighborhood. That we would hear his heart for others. What did Isaiah hear from God? What was the first conversation he has with God? The first conversation Isaiah has with God is about others. It wasn't even about Isaiah. There's a real hell that people will spend the eternity in. And there are real people on this planet that will spend eternity in hell because the church has been silent. Because the church has refused to hear God's heart for other people. We've become consumers in the kingdom and not givers and not providers and not reachers. We've become grabbing. Christians are grabbing today. We're grabbing. I got to get this from me. I got to get that from me. I got to get me in mind. Oh, it's all about me. And we're forgetting about those that God's heart is for. He got you. He's celebrating that. All of heaven rejoiced when he got you. But now he wants to turn and use you to get more. That's his plan. So he had a heart that's been in God's presence. He had a heart that knew its own sinfulness. He had a heart that knew the need of the people. He had a heart that had been touched by God's cleansing fire. And he had a heart that heard God's heart to reach the nations. So Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. You You want to know what the Lord said? Go. Go. You know what he wants to hear today? Here I am. Send me. I'll go. And you know what he's ready to say? Go. And let me, let me help you understand that go. That go could mean go and serve me here. It could mean go and serve me over there. 
It could also mean go and prepare yourself to serve me wherever I'm going to show you. But just go. What's his response to us today? Go. Go. So Paul delivers Isaiah 6 to the Jews. He passes on to them a judgment that is meant to bring them back to himself, to God. And even though he passed on that prophet, that prophetic judgment to them, some of them walked away and never believed. And Paul said this, that's okay. The Gentiles will. The Gentiles will. Now what you got to understand about that is that was a kick in the teeth. Because these were God's chosen people. The Gentiles were the scum of the earth. And God said to them, if you won't go, I'll take people that you think less of. I'll take the trashy things of this world and they'll go. I pray over my own life that God never has to send anybody in my place. I got enough pride inside of me for Jesus that says, ain't nobody going for me. Ain't nobody going for me. I'm going to go. His robe is still filling the temple. Seraphim are still shouting to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the Lord is asking the question today. Whom should I send as a messenger to my people? for us whom shall I send to reach Eunice Basile, Mamu Peron Apollosis Richard Crowley, Iota who, who's going to go for me whom shall I send asking that question this morning who's going to go who's going to respond today I've already cried over those of you that won't I may cry again but I'm ready to rejoice over those of you that Those of you that will respond to God in this moment. You see, Isaiah didn't go home and pray about it. He responded in the moment. Now, the hard part about that is that now you got to go home and walk it out. You 
may have to respond again and again and again and again. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, right now his spirit is walking every aisle looking for volunteers who's going to go the Lord would say to you today some of you are waiting on a church program to go Isaiah never waited for a church program to go why do you need one? The question is for each one of us individually today. It's almost like the Lord saying your name. Jamie? you feel like people are watching your motives are wrong I believe the Lord's looking for people that have made their mind up before people have made their opinions up before anyone can form an opinion saying who shall I send and if the answer is you would you raise your hand raise it high I need to see it I'll go I'll go now what I want you to understand is what you're raising your hand to is the lordship of Jesus Christ raising your hand to, Lord, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Lord, I'll go wherever you tell me to go. Lord, I'll say whatever you tell me to say. That's what you're raising your hand to. You better be sure you know what you're raising your hand to. I'll go. I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. Even if I'm scared, even if it costs me everything, 
outcome. Raise your hand real high if that's you. Just real high. Praise God. Praise God. You can put them down. So you might be wondering, what do I do now? Some of you are having almost a buyer's remorse right now. You're going, oh, shoot, what did I sign up for? And it may be a little bit intimidating. And don't think for one second that the enemy's not going to come and try to challenge your decision. The Lord will say to you, I'll meet you when you sit still. I'll meet you when you quiet yourself. And I'll give you some instructions there. If you'll trust me, I'll lead you one day at a time. So don't let your mind get too far down the road. Don't let your anxiety get amped up because you're wondering what God's going to do. All you need to do is, is meet with him. Get in a quiet place. Quiet your soul. And say, Lord, I'm here to meet with you today. How can I serve you today? And then wait until he responds. And I want you to understand this. God doesn't give me something to do every day. He's not a workaholic. Some days I sit down and I say, Lord, I'm here. How can I serve you today? And then he'll shock me. He'll say, you know, I really love you. I'm really proud of you. And that's all you need to walk in today. And I'll be honest with you, those are the best days. days where he says, I want you to go and do this. I want you to go and say this. Call so-and-so. Go meet this person. And boy, when I respond and I go, all I can say is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. His glory fills the earth. That's all I can say when I go in obedience and I say or do what he tells me to do, all I can say is holy, holy, holy. Lord Jesus, I surrender. I lay everything down at your feet today. Not I that live, but you live in me and through me. I surrender. Thank you.